0: Well, turn in your Bibles again to the book of Romans, that book that has been used of God to instruct His church in the sovereignty of grace, justifying righteousness, that book that has been used to send reformation to the church and revival to the church time and again throughout church history. And uh, last time we focused on verses 14 through 16 or 17, and our focus tonight We'll be, Lord willing, on verses 18 through the end of the chapter, but I think it's wise that we read the entirety, even though we're really picking up primarily at verse 18 uh, this evening. Let's pray together. Once again, Heavenly Father, we bow in reverence of your name. We pray for the flock of God purchased with your own blood, Many of our people are away, some at Ridge Haven, others in various states vacationing. Bring them back to us safely and help them to focus their minds and hearts' attention upon you. But Father, even before the service began, noticing young people in our congregation and children in our congregation, it is this pastor's earnest desire that each one know you and that future generations in this church know you and will be so committed to Christ and the gospel and to your word that it will not matter if the whole world around does not believe that this church will be faithful until Jesus comes again. And so, Father, help us to pass down to our children those things that are true and good and right, and especially a commitment to public and private worship and to the ministry of the word proclaimed in the life of the Christian. But Father, even though we make earnest efforts, only the Holy Spirit can bring fruit. And so we pray for fruit in our children's lives and fruit even in all of our lives as the word is proclaimed on this day. And these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take our copies of God's word and stand as we have been doing in the mornings and let's read together beginning at verse 1 of chapter 10. This is the Word of God, Romans 10, beginning with verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now let me ask this question of you. Fundamentally speaking, does the church exist for the world, or does the world exist for the church? Now let me give you a moment to pause, think about it. Which do you think is true? Now, certainly there's a sense in which the church exists for the world. We are to love the world around us, take the gospel to the world around us. But more fundamentally, especially from the perspective of God's eternal decree and plan, the salvation of his people, the world exists for the church. God is calling out of the world the people whom he intends to save forever in covenant with himself. And the chief means that the Lord has ordained for calling out his elect is the Spirit's blessing on the preaching of the word of God. Now, we saw that two weeks ago, two Sunday nights back, as we looked at a portion of Romans chapter 10 together. So let's have a brief review of at least a very important point that was made then. So, first, preaching of God's Word, a review. We found in verse 14 that there is a translation question. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? But you notice in your ESV that there is a marginal reading. And focusing on verse 14, how are they to believe on him of whom they have not heard? I argued more accurately the translation should be, how shall they believe him whom they have not heard? So what Paul is saying here is that he calls and gifts and sends ministers of the word into the world and into his church. And as he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the word is faithfully and truly expounded, Christ himself is the one who is heard. That is to say, Christ himself is the one who is proclaiming his truth, his loving gospel to his people. And we saw that this elevates the office, the task, and the content of true preaching way beyond what we ordinarily think about preaching. For what the apostle is saying is that Christ preaches through his preachers. I mean his true preachers who preach the truth of God's word. Not through our errors, of course. Not someone who claims to be a preacher and preaches William Shakespeare from the pulpit, for example. Wonderful to know Shakespeare, but that's not the minister's calling. But when the minister actually expounds faithfully the word of God, Christ himself is the one You hear in your heart when you receive that word. He is the true preacher of the gospel. Now that brings, I think, to those of us who are called to the ministry of the word, a great sense of weight and responsibility. Who can bear knowing that he is actually expounding the word of God to his people and that Christ is using his mouth to proclaim the truth? Of his word, but it also brings, I think, a great sense of joy and exhilaration, both of those same things simultaneously in the life of the preacher. One thing is for sure, and I'll say this especially for those of us who are called to preach the word and for any intern who may be here tonight if we don't take these things seriously, if we do not believe the weight, the significance, the depth, the wonder, the glory, the nobility of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to his people. If we do not believe those things, then we certainly can never expect our congregations to. And I think that's a problem in the church, that we have so lost a sense of office, maybe because we, we have a legitimate concern not to fall into priestcraft, but we have lost a sense of what it means to be called to office and called to the ministry of word and sacrament. We have so lost that. We have fallen into this idea that uh, everyone is a minister. Now, surely everyone has gifts and uses them in the church, but not everyone is a preacher. Not everyone is called to be a minister of word and sacrament. We have so denigrated office that we fail to understand the great weight, depth, significance, and I again say the nobility of preaching the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a noble thing, and insofar as we ministers are able, it is a noble task to preach it, and we should preach it with all the nobility possible. So the preacher, according to these verses, is sent, and he must be called, notice verse 15, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And he is called here a kerux, a herald. And you know what a herald does. A herald takes the word of the king or goes before the king and he proclaims that he is coming or he proclaims his message. But a king's herald does not call himself He must be called and he must be sent by the king. So what dignity is here? As Calvin said, when a man has climbed into the pulpit, it is so that God may speak to us by the mouth of a man. So what privilege and obligation that puts upon the hearer, whether he realizes it or not. And so we read in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The primary means... That God has chosen to use for the conversion of the lost and the upbuilding of His people is the public proclamation of His Word, the preaching of the Word of God. Now, this leads us to, secondly, the hearing of the Word. Paul then returns to the hearing of the Word of God by the Jews whom he longs to be saved. So he says in verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? It's almost as if it's an excruciating question for him. His heart is broken. Have they not heard? Because you remember in verse one that he said, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is to say for the Jew, is that they may be saved. And he says in verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel. And in verse 16, notice verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, and here he quotes Isaiah 53, 1, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? He cites Isaiah 53, 1, the Jews heard the gospel, but they did not hear the gospel. They heard the gospel on one level, but they did not hear the gospel in faith. The Jews heard the gospel, but except for the elect remnant, they did not believe the gospel. They did not accept the gospel. And that's how Isaiah begins, that wondrous chapter 53 in which he speaks of the atonement of the Savior. The preachers have gone out, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings. Looking ahead, he sees the preachers proclaiming the word of God, proclaiming the gospel, The son has come, he has died for sinners, and he sees the Jew rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the Jews heard the gospel, but they did not believe the gospel. And the apostle Paul is brokenhearted over this because he longs for his kinsmen according to the flesh to know Christ as he does. And so there are two ways of hearing the preached word that we must be aware of tonight. One is to hear with the ear only but never to believe it. The other is by grace, by the grace of God, to believe the word that is preached. So one hears the incarnation, one hears of the obedience of Christ to the law that we broke and his atonement upon the cross and his resurrection. He hears it. He even can explain it to you. He can understand it. Perhaps he can even quote the catechism, but he does not believe in this Christ He does not know him personally, but another hears these wondrous truths. God became flesh and dwelt among us and he obeyed the law that we broke as our substitute and he died upon a cross in our place and he paid the penalty of our sins and rose from the dead and ascended on high and his heart is broken over his sin and filled with the love and joy of the gospel and he believes and embraces Jesus Christ that has been preached. An example of that, of course, is the day of Pentecost, in which on that day, there were thousands who believed the message, and it penetrated their hearts so that they cried out, what must we do? And of course, they were pointed by Peter to Jesus alone as the Savior. Now that's the preaching of the Word of God, and it's the preaching of the Word of God until Jesus comes again. Some here with faith. Others will not believe. Uh, For some, the gospel is a savor of life unto life. For others, the gospel is a savor of death unto death. And it is my prayer, and I'm sure Jeff's and Adam's as well, the elders of the church and the deacons who serve, that no one in this congregation, no one under our charge, that no one here would be lost but everyone saved, that we would have the same brokenheartedness that Paul shows as he is concerned for those of his race, that they know Jesus Christ. That some here, Paul has already told us, however, is traceable not to man. That some here with faith, that some believe, is not traceable to anything within us, but is traceable completely to the good pleasure of God. And so, just for example, in chapter 9 of Romans, just the chapter that precedes, we saw in verses 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? When God intends to save a sinner, He directs his word to his heart, grants him saving faith, and the fruit of faith is the Lord's sovereign work in his life. Now this is Paul's encouragement, and it should be the encouragement of every preacher, and it should be our encouragement as a church. We send missionaries around the world. Uh, They preach the gospel. They teach others about Jesus Christ. They point them to the Lord Jesus But, you know, they're preaching in a cemetery. They've gone out into the world that is lost in darkness, and they are taking this gospel to those who are dead in trespasses and sins. Wherever should we think that one could go into the world and expect people to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, Paul's encouragement in ours, when he considers his kinsmen according to the flesh, and he will dwell on this again, is that God is sovereign to save sinners. Notice in chapter 11, let's just read the first seven verses because we'll be coming there next time, but he dwells upon this theme again. He says in chapter 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So Isaiah 53, 1, as we saw just a little while ago in verse 16, tells us that many would not believe the word of the gospel preached, but we also read in Isaiah 53, Jesus shall see his seed and shall be satisfied. The gospel comes as a command to be obeyed according to verse 16, but who can obey? That is who can believe. Do you remember what we've seen in the book of Romans in the 5th chapter? We are all the whole human race is fallen in Adam. In Adam's fall, we sin it all. Or go back to chapter 3 of Romans and let's note verses 9 and following. Chapter 3, let's remember what Paul has said about the the depravity of the human race, the depravity of the human heart, Uh, wicked, turned against God, and rebellious. He says in chapter 3, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? He's been talking about Jew and Gentile. No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so if you do not obey the gospel proclaimed, you were saying, tragically, you love sin rather than God and you will not submit to him you will have nothing to do with him. But now the only way that such an attitude can be overcome in the Jew or in the Gentile is the sovereignty of God's grace. God grants faith. Faith is not a condition. There are no conditions of salvation. Jesus has met all conditions. It is pure gift. Now that's the hearing of the Word of God. And in this congregation, we want to take The opposite approach that is taken to evangelism that may be taken in many churches. In many churches, the idea is the gospel is presented and God has done everything that He possibly can do in order to bring you to Himself. It's up to you now, it's in your hands. We want to kill that. We want to absolutely kill and slay. That is to say, we pray the Holy Spirit will use our preaching. To absolutely kill and slay that attitude because that's works righteousness. It's the sinner believing and thinking he still has something within him that will commend him to God. That he can do something to bring himself into a savable state. But what Paul is saying here in Romans 10, Romans 9, everywhere through his epistles and the Bible teaches is that there is nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. There is nothing that you can do to even bring yourself into a savable state. And if you have that view, then it's our prayer that God will absolutely slay and kill it in your life so that you will see yourself as hopeless and helpless because when God brings a sinner to himself, he would have that sinner to see that it is grace and grace alone that saves him from his sin. So that's the hearing of the word. It comes by faith, and faith comes by hearing the word of God, and it's all in the hand and the operation of a sovereign God through his Holy Spirit. But thirdly, notice that God finds sinners that do not seek him, God finds sinners that do not seek him, again, underscoring his sovereignty. So let's read again verses 19 through 21. Romans 10, 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is bold as to say, I have been found by those who do not seek me, I have shown myself to those who do not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So did not Israel know the gospel? Verse 19. But I ask, did not Israel? Did Israel not understand? Did they not hear the gospel? He asks in verse 18. Have they not heard? Well, citing Deuteronomy thirty-two twenty-one that far back, the Lord said through Moses that he would send the gospel to the Gentiles and call them provoking Israel to jealousy. And then in verse 20, he quotes Isaiah 65, 1, that God was found of them that sought him not. Did you hear that? That sought him not. That means the Gentiles Israel knew, but rejected, and God plainly said that he would turn to the Gentile world. So, in Isaiah 65, Isaiah looks ahead to the captivity. You'll remember that there is much in Isaiah that prophesies the Babylonian captivity, though that would happen after Isaiah's times of prophesying. In Isaiah 65, he looks once again to the captivity, and he prays, "'O God, will you remember your covenant?' Does God answer that prayer? Yes, He answers that prayer, but not as Israel expected. He makes His covenant of grace with Gentiles. He establishes a new Israel. I was found of them that sought me not. So God stood before Israel with outstretched hands, we read in verse 21. But if Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He had revealed himself clearly to Israel. The general call of the gospel has gone out to Israel. If they had come, he would readily receive them. But of course, they would not come. And today as well, the preaching of the gospel, God stands through his ministers with outstretched hands willing to receive all who come by christ to him he is willing to save all who will come to him and those who come to him will only be the elect of god because it is all together by grace if you come into the outstretched arms of god it is because he drew you He drew me and I followed on, charmed, to confess the voice divine, says one of our hymns. Before Israel, he stood with outstretched arms, but they did not find him. There is a general call, but there are those who did not seek him that were called and who found him because he found them. By whom was he found? The elect among the Gentiles. Wicked? sinful, rebellious, depraved Gentiles like us. I came to them, God says. I sent my son for them. Through my son, they were purchased from their sins. They were particularly bought by his shed blood. My Holy Spirit was sent into their lives. I granted them saving faith. The word was preached, and they believed. And so you see, we completely misperceive verse 21, this text, if we think that it means that God pitifully stands before men with outstretched arms, unable to do anything about saving them from their sin, unless first they are willing. No, he makes us willing in the day of his power. And the Arminian approach to this text would deny all that Paul has said in the book of Romans all that he has especially said in chapters 8 and 9, all that he will say in chapter 11, all that he has said up to this point in chapter 10. Paul is not saying, after 15 verses of just as I am, maybe someone will be persuaded to use their own free will to do what God cannot do. Can you think of a more dishonoring view of the preaching of the gospel than that? It's hawking Jesus. The call is first general to all, and then it is effectual to some. He calls and silences the voice of rebellion by saving, really saving, sinners. So the preaching of the sovereignty of God's grace is not going to hinder someone from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon used to say, I would preach a sermon that was designed designed to evangelize the lost, and well, he should, and we should, and nobody would come to know the Lord. And then I would preach a sermon on electing grace, the sermon that people say will never bring anybody to Christ, and all these people believed. Well, why? Because God chose to use the message of the sovereignty of his grace in their lives to bring them to the end of themselves, to the end of ourselves, so that we see that we do not contribute a thing our redemption and salvation. So there goes the gospel into the world through our missionaries here in this congregation. We preach the gospel. We say to any sinner, believe and you will be saved. That is the promise of the gospel. But there are those who will not believe and there are those who will. And I sometimes have liked to put it this way, that we live in the lightning capital of the world. This time of the year, we see a good bit of that, don't we? And so we have the great the great lighting of the sky, and there's the general call of the gospel, but also we have the lightning when it strikes its object. That's the effectual call. I was saying to Adam just the other day the story of B.M. Palmer, Southern Presbyterian theologian pastor in Savannah, Georgia, 19th century. A man, a young man who had been in their congregation for a while came to Benjamin Morgan Palmer in his study and he said, I'm really upset with you. Why is that, said Dr. Palmer, looking up from his studies. You've been telling us that we are responsible to believe the gospel. Yes, I had said, have, said Dr. Palmer. You have also been telling us that we can't do it. That's also true, said Dr. Palmer. And the man got so upset, he left angrily and he said to Dr. Palmer as he left, I want you to know I can believe on Jesus Christ anytime I want to. A little while later, he came back to Benjamin Morgan Palmer's study and he said, I can't do it. And Dr. Palmer said, let's get on our knees and go to the one who can. That's the point. Effectual calling, irresistible grace, that's what's being taught here in this passage those who did not seek him found him. That's what God is doing in the world, drawing out a people for himself. And so there's the general call, there's the effectual call. Let me see if I can remember this. When Evan was really, really tiny, and we would say it's bedtime, there's this little poem. Oh, it's hippity hop to bed. I'd rather stay up and said instead Oh, it's hippity-hop to bed. I'd rather stay up instead. But when daddy says must, there's nothing but just go hippity-hop to bed. So you see, that's the effectual call. You see, it's time to go to bed. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. So do you see the place, the role, the significance of the preached word? That's really what I want us to see. As over these two Sunday nights, we've looked at, at this, this passage. I want us to see the place, the role, the significance of the preached word. And do you see the way the Lord calls generally, but with the intent of applying the word specifically to those he intends to save? Yes, a remnant, but a remnant that is a multitude that no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth. No small number. And this does not make preaching superfluous. This is God's ordained and ordinary means of taking the gospel savingly to the sinner's heart. So I told you in the beginning that the world exists for the church. And this is what I meant by it. That God has this world, and he has his plan, and he's working in this world, and he's drawing out sinners that he intends to save With whom he will make his covenant of friendship and grace forever. To me, one of the most powerful images of the significance of the preached word in this world and in the lives of God's people was given by Klaus Schilder, Dutch Reformed theologian, who thinks of this world as a dome. This world is a great dome, and the world is upheld by a pillar, and that pillar is the preaching of the gospel. One of these days, the last sermon will be preached, the pillar will be removed, and the dome will collapse when Jesus comes again, and there is the day of judgment. This means that the preaching of the gospel, far from being dispensable, is urgent. And urgency, urgency, should always characterize, must characterize, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ until Jesus comes again. And so the Lord through his messenger stands before you with outstretched arms. The revelation of himself is clear. May he... Enable souls to hear. And God's people said, Amen.